You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, everyone. On behalf of North Sydney Council and the Constant Reader Bookshop, welcome to the Library and the Writers at Stanton program. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of these lands in which we meet and to pay our respects to the spirits of and ancestors past and present. My name is Margaret Nicholson from the Reader Services team and today I have the pleasure of introducing Wendy McCarthy who will talk about her new book, Don't Be Too Polite, Girls. Uh, Wendy has been described as an educator, activist, agent of change and for four, more than 50 years she's been on the leading edge of feminism and corporate and public life in this country. And her trailblazing advocacy and leadership has made her a widely respected figure. Uh, Wendy was born in Orange, New South Wales, and is an Australian businesswoman, activist, former teacher and university administrator. She also founded the North Sydney Community Centre in the early 1970s. So we thank you for that. Thank you. Um, Please give a warm welcome to Wendy McCarthy. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Oh, it feels like coming home, really, being here. It's, 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 such a, it's such a weird sensation. I remember when I lived here, and if you ever went to the eastern suburbs, people would say, pack your lunch. And now I live there, and I think, do I need to pack my lunch when I come back here? No, but I still have friends, and I walk around here, and I think about, you know, 50 years since this... Hello, Diana. Um, <laughs> since this uh, centre set up, and I remember how that happened. Anyway... Two, we'll have a few memories on the way through, and, uh, but I do want to say thank you for the invitation from the library. It meant, meant a lot to me to be back here. Um, there's so many happy, treasured memories because, in a sense, I did my second growing up here. Uh, I was, became a mother in this area. I became a resident action... Well, I thought activist, other people thought terrorist. Um, And I also, you know, I formed my first family. Then with the resident action movement, you know, we got the council knocked off, made up of developers, and all this land became dedicated to public space and and resident action people took, and Carol Baker became the first female mayor of um, North Sydney and stayed for years and years and years and years and now I was at the Sawmillers event last weekend and there is Zoe, her daughter, the Mayor of North Sydney and I think good women have a habit of repeating themselves really. Um, and so it's very particular to me to come back. So often when I come to these events I have this very, uh, to me, annoying habit of thinking I should almost rewrite my book because I'm introducing it. And then I realised that actually I've come here to talk about my book, so I am going to read from some of my book um, on the way through. And I guess the first thing I want to acknowledge in a formal way, apart from my invitation to be here, is to acknowledge ancestors past and present of First Nations people. And I just want to add to that how important it is for women of my age to 
keep on encouraging young First Nations women to be outperforming the way they are at the moment. The movement of women of colour, women of First Nation, refugee, immigrant women, into leadership places, being educated and so on, is so phenomenally outstanding. I could not have begun to imagine in my life that this would happen. Now, I know that some, many of them think, as I did in those days, in my turn, years ago, that change wasn't fast enough. But looking from my perspective, it's been remarkable and really, really accelerated in the last 10 years. People say to me, why did I write a book? My mother would have said, why? there's no need to draw attention to yourself <laughs> and there's no need to write a book. She said that about the first one. And she, she would say, and if you speak to anyone publicly, don't identify yourself. All that means don't say hello. Don't say who you are. I didn't even know who I was then. Um, but I think that I want to write to you the prologue of this book because I spent two years writing this book in COVID. I, I really decided that the time had come that I wanted to capture this, the social history of my, the feminists of my time. So I'm going to write you the prologue, and strangely, as you hear it, you might think about this. My youngest grandchild, second youngest, a boy of 11, said, rang me last night, and he said, I'm really enjoying your book. And I said, are you? Did I write for an 11-year-old? <laughs> I said, yes, he said. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not interested in my school books much anymore. And I thought his mother will be thrilled. Um, and he said, but I'm really enjoying it. He said, I've read the prologue and I found that really interesting. And he said, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, and he said, you should read the prologue. And I said, oh, I did at the, the launch. And I go, thanks. And he said, now I'm up to page 18 in the first chapter. And I've worked out that... If I keep reading, within a month I should have finished the book and then we can have a long discussion about it. He said, but meanwhile we'll just talk about each chapter. Now the most remarkable thing about that is that I've never noticed such enthusiasm of writing, about my writing for my sons or other members of the family, to be quite frank. And here is this little child who's intrigued by something. So here's the prologue. I start by quoting Kamala Harris from The Truths We Hold in American Journey. I don't want us to tell, just to tell them how we felt. I want us to tell them what we did. And so do I. On Thursday, the 19th of September, 2019, I was sitting in the New South Wales Parliament listening to an excruciating debate on the abortion bill. The debate was becoming circular and all the key players were exhausted. Any hope that this would be a benign legislative change to remove abortion from the criminal code had long gone. It had become feral. I was booked on a flight to London on the 22nd of September, three days later, a reservation already twice deferred because of this debate. After 30 hours in the chamber and the prospect of another extension, I sent a text to the Minister for Health. I sent it at 6pm when the session ended, asking when will this be done? His response was, we have to go through this, but we are nearly there. That night, the Premier closed the debate down to further extensions. The general consensus is that it would finally have a safe passage. I decided I would trust the process and leave as planned. I was looking forward to the flight as an opportunity to sleep 
and reflect on the two years of campaigning that had led to this anticipated triumph. I watched the rest of the debate in the New South Wales Parliament on live stream in the United Kingdom and could now relax secure in the new reality that no woman or her doctor will go to jail and be treated as criminals for this particular medical procedure. It had been a long, hard slog, 50 years in fact. It's a story to treasure and hold close when we feel cynical or disbelieving that plan planned change never happens. At a personal political level, it was the accomplishment of my life to lead the pro-choice campaign to this result. I never doubted it was the right thing to do. And as my friend Susan Ryan was fond of saying, just keep going. I had an illegal abortion in 1964, which I'd never disclosed until I did in a national newspaper in 1972. Putting this information in the public domain was a deliberate political act that challenged the police to lay charges on the women who'd signed the double-page spread advertisement for their criminal behaviour. At that time, an abortion was a crime for both a woman and her doctor stroke abortionist, and the penalty was 10 years jail. 80 of us outed ourselves, and the police did not lay charges. It was liberating to stare down the secrecy and fear that had surrounded our actions. It was a relief to publicly own this and refuse to accept shame and regret. Strength came from standing our ground collectively and not being bluffed and intimidated by threats. It reminded me of when I was an adolescent and I refused to be diminished by a boy from my class who told me my father was a drunk. My response was, I know. <laughs> Deadly silence. I refused to let him destroy me with those words. He never mentioned it again. Our culture offers us inner scripts and codes for our lives. If women of my generation had accepted those and stayed inside the prescribed boundaries, Australia would be a very different place. Changing the culture changed the script and gave us opportunities unknown to our mothers and grandmothers. But we can't take for granted that the trajectory for change will be as we wish unless we defend and we fight for it. I'm looking at you too. I have learned that there is a cause for everyone somewhere. And when it matters so much, you will march for it and you are on your way. Diana and I have done a few of those things and probably other women in the room. And even amongst the tough parts of life are moments of humour, fun and satisfaction that come from being an engaged citizen. There is less I and more us and we. And we learn to keep our heads and hearts connected. Learn to say yes to opportunity and risk and worry later how to manage it, apart, in, apart from managed of sexual intercourse. As Glenn Thomas said, he sang through the 70s, don't be too polite, girls, show a little fight. Or as Gandhi advised, be the change you wish to see in the world. Memoirs remain a powerful way of sharing stories. There is a hunger to hear from those who have gone before and in whose steps we follow. We ask them, tell us how you did it. Currently, I'm thinking of the women in Port Kembla who challenged the BHP Steelworks and won their long Jobs for Women campaign, 1980 to 1994, 14 years. 
raising money to make the film. And strangely, it will be on Women of Steel, will be on ABC this weekend for International Women's Event. I gave a tiny amount of money to that and it made me feel like an investor. I never was an investor, I was a salary earner. But just to give something and think, I just made a tiny difference to that when they said, it's okay if you only give $5. I think I gave 150 or something, but at that time it was quite a lot of money to me. And I think that it's just that opportunity to feel that you are part of the change. Often it's in the writing of a memoir that you find out what encouraged you to just keep going. It's been 22 years since I first wrote about my life. And as I was saying to Frenny, for being 60 is very different to being 80. For starters, I think anyone under 65 is young. The expectations of appropriate lives for women over 60, though, are being revisited. And we can all contribute and be a part of that. And I'm really happy about that. At 80, we have a long view, and the past often seems to be repeating. It sometimes feels like shopping for clothes when there's nothing you haven't seen or worn before. But then you can be surprised. But secrets and lies are uncovered with the passage of time. For instance, it seems to me that no one knew my father had been court-martialed in 1943. How could I grow up and never hear from my family that that happened? How could it be? Had I not been questioning discrepancies in his recorded birth dates and gone to check his army records, I may never have found out. It has profoundly changed my view of my father. When I read his testimony, I could hear his voice, something I found poignant and moving. When I wrote Down Fence Me in 1999, I was astonished to think that I wrote a book that anyone bought, although that was the purpose. This will be the last memoir because I've run out of song titles, but <laughs> who knows, maybe they will. I'll think of another song by then. So that was really why I wrote it. And I wrote it in a particular way. I wrote it in a way that you could... I wasn't assuming that anyone was going to read the narrative all the way through, although if you write to me and say, you know, the bathwater got cold and you had to refill the bath while you read it, I'll be very happy. But I just had that sense that so many people don't finish books they write. They start at the beginning and they just lose interest along the way. And I wanted young people to be able to, you know, dip in and dip out. So, for example, when we look at the... Um, and I'm going to talk about some of these. Just the topics, you know, it's about first families, you know, where did I come from? You know, when you meet someone, where do you come from? Who's your tribe? You know, where'd you grow up? The fact that I was a country girl, the choices I made I, um, here. And then this is the story of a happy, ma happy marriage, a marriage, my marriage, about coming home after years overseas. And then person personal is political, which of course was the 1970s. Family planning where I worked, National Women's Advisory Council, bad things that happened, Black Friday. And then quite a bit about raising money for our causes, which I never addressed before, because now, as women, when we're doing change, we are expected to be able to fund some of those things, and that's not always easy for us. We don't have much, in many of us. And then I wrote the story of the girl, a priest in loco parentis, a bishop and a governor-general, about my friend Beth, who eventually brought Hollingworth down, 
because he refused to speak to her and she had been sexually abused by the person who was in loco parentis for us living in a country um, boarding hostel. Uh, and it, in a sense, they are also the disclosed issues of the 21st century in a way that they weren't quite in the 20th century. And then I wrote something about our bodies and women's health when it came to me as, not, as a surprise to think that I hadn't thought of it. The publisher said to me, you spent years working in women's health. Why haven't you got something there on women's health? And I said, oh. She said, well, fix it. <laughs> and I then thought, I've got to take us through menopause. I've got to work away, but you have to have a long view. That's my Twitter handle, taking a long view. And I just wanted to think that the life cycle, health cycle of a woman is so different from a man and so different in the way it can be expressed through careers and leadership and responsibility. And I look at the generation in my family of young women, you know, start, I think they're really young, um, starting menopause and finding how annoying and irritating and upsetting and awful it can be while others just sail through and still not enough known or supported. And I recall the first menopause conference I went to when I was speaking. I was really furious when I got there because I was told I had to be there at 9am and I got to speak at 4 o'clock when most of them gone off for drinkies. But there was not another woman speaker in the room. Like, it's our issue. Why aren't we speaking about it? And that's always been a driving force for me. I'm not interested in other people defining who I am, what I can do and how I'll do it. I'm quite respectful of rules, agreed rules but I need to do it. Now I'll talk about creating a mentoring practice and then working in Headspace. I chaired Headspace for 10 years and it's, you know, mental health is now the top non-communicable disease in the world. How lucky was I to have that opportunity to work with young people? And there's a chapter on governance which probably sounds really dull and to some people it is, but the publisher again kept saying to me, Wendy... Lots of people don't know what governance is. Just give them a short little piece on governance. So this is about that opportunity just to open the book and say, well, how do I get on a board? What's governance about? And then a long story about Karen Forbes' campaign, real issue when you think about you've got the independent women running. Karen's was really the first one. I was the campaign director for that, and that was really fun. Um, that's called doctor's orders, in case you can't find your way through. <laughs> and then... There's a photograph and a really nice story to help understand the cliche of become a woman with a dog living alone in an apartment and how the dog Daisy May has become a new creature in my life with her lovely photograph. And then a lot of stories about missing friends and families. Probably my friends Hazel Hawke and Susan Reiner too, whom I miss the most in terms of, you know, they're, they're always free with their advice, which I loved. I didn't have to accept it, but I heard it. So I think that's a bit of a change in the way we normally construct a memoir, but just to have these little moments when you can hop in and do different things. One of the things that I wanted to talk about, and it doesn't need to find my little first thing, is that I'm a, I am essentially still a child of the country. At the age of three, I was enrolled in school in Orange, and Orange was uh, my birthplace. And even in the backyard of our house in Orange, we had an orchard and I had a pony. 
and used to ride the pony. I could ride the pony out to the showground. And when I was enrolled in this school, the principal, this little bluestone church hall, how my parents ever managed to get me to a preschool in 1943 is astonishing. But it certainly gave me a head start. But there's one terrible day when my mother was really upset. The principal had a double barrel name and was much admired by the locals, probably because of that. <laughs> she also ran a tight ship and all the young mothers were in fear and awe of her. She launched a rigorous campaign to convert my left-handedness, which finally resulted in a campaign to con uh, summoning my, uh, a meeting, sorry, included summoning my parents to a meeting. My mother was terrified. She assumed I must have done something really shocking to, for my father to be asked as well. The principal explained, Wendy's left-handed. We've tried everything. She just refuses. She's not rude about it, but very politely sits down and keeps using her left hand. It will be a terrible handicap to her. <laughs> my father looked at her and said, apparently, I wouldn't try on changing her mind. She's very determined. I'll remain left-handed and not visibly damaged from it. But all the way through university, teachers' college scholarship, handicaps, there was a little sign, a little piece on the form, left-handed. <laughs> and I argued with the person when I was having a test at a um, Sydney Teachers' College. It was really exciting to come be brought down to Sydney to have an interview and so on with teachers' college scholarship people. And... So you had to go off and you had to pee in the, you know, in the lavatory there and I'd never really been in the city and, we and the man said, oh, left-handed, oh, um, we might have to correct that. I said, oh no, I've worked out that if I write on the board left-handed, it's better than being right-handed because I walk, you know, we walk across this way, we write that way and the, the words are exposed as I move along. <laughs> he looked, he said... Oh, pass you. I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> oh, dear. Such is life. I became a teacher, and I still think... I'll just read you the little bit I wrote. I still think that it is the most important thing I ever did. When that adorable, young, brave, amazing woman, Malala, and her father decided that she would go to school despite being shot. She said, when the whole world is silent, even one voice becomes powerful. It's still a goosebump statement. And when I heard her, I thought then about how different my life would have been had I stayed a teacher. And I wrote here, I still think of myself as a teacher, but I work in different classrooms. I can't think of any role that I've taken on in my career where my professional training as a teacher, has not been of great value to me. To the way I learn, to the way I encourage and enable people to be curious, to the way that I refuse to accept the status quo, to the way I want to engage a team, no one learns in isolation. It works for governance too. People say to me, how come you've been on the boards of ABC, Circus Oz, IMF Bentham, McGraw Real Estate, when you're just a teacher. Never call me just a teacher. I am a very proud teacher. I've been to so many communities around the world where the teacher is a revered person. In Ghana, a teacher came to meet me on a plan project. 
that's an international agency. Um, with, with its primary focus being children development. The man was obviously nervous about meeting an older white woman whose organisations had invested in the community. He came out from this little cement and brick place that Plan had built. Inside it was incredibly hot and totally inappropriate for a contemporary classroom, although there were some windows for ventilation. No glass, but windows. He was so proud of the space and proud of the responsibility of hosting the donors. He confided to me that the brown woolen suit he was wearing was his best outfit. He was 24 and trembling with excitement. He wanted to demonstrate that his pupils were, as required in that community, obedient and enthusiastically engaged in learning. It was such a touching moment and I will always remember the sign on the classroom walls. I took a photograph of it, which I still cherish. Reading makes a perfect man. Every man I know, I tell that to. <laughs> Lift your game, mate. Reading makes the perfect man. But when I went to hear Malala speak, I was overpowered by the power of that young woman and her words about teachers. And I wondered to myself, why didn't I persevere and stay as a teacher? The simplicity of her quote, one child, one teacher, one pen and one book can change the world is so true. Teaching as a profession today doesn't respond to contemporary ways of evaluation and impact producing answers in short time frames. It can take a long time to do these tasks. Sometimes you don't see the experience and success of a teacher until 10 years after a child's left formal education. But you must never give up. We see green shoots, we see weary classrooms and weary children, we see social dislocation, and then we see inspired people in our classrooms. And students are unable to find the answers they need to run their lives. I wonder why we go on the relentless pursuit of metrics. Maybe we want instant satisfaction. We're the donors, the benefactors, the voters. We want to know that our children can do certain things at certain ages. But there is enough evidence around the world, as there has always been, that in a congenial classroom with a good teacher, most of these things will happen. We have to remind ourselves that not everyone's able to learn at the same time. Classrooms based on age where children move ahead for the convenience of systems are not right for some. But most places around the world, because it suits the majority of children, I, I want to answer the question, why did I not become a teacher? Because it's easy to, to even flip your own memory and you know, just forget yourself. When I, my first year of teaching, I worked at Cremorne Girls High School. When I drive past and I see it belongs to Skeggs, I still have a terrible desire to run through in my car, bash the wall down and give it back to the state. It just enrages me that it is there, that I've more or less learned to cope with the rage. So I had these three glorious years at Cremorne Girls High. I learnt more about life, even at my first feminist thing, the women in the staff room told me about Betty Friedan. I saw these wonderful, wonderful teaching women teachers, casual, put off at minute's notice, no maternity leave. We did have equal pay. But we, it was 
you know, for me, the classroom was coming home. And off I went. I got married at the end of three years teaching, and I had a five-year bond scholarship from my, from my scholarship. But at the end of three years, if you were female, you could have your scholarship fees waived. Now, I thought this was just fabulous. However, when I thought about it 30 years later, I realised that what we were doing is we were setting women up to be teachers until they were mothers, because mothers were the primary job role. The men had to fulfil theirs and pay it back. It's the only case of positive discrimination, I think, that I've ever had in my life that I didn't have to pay the £200 before I got married in order to waive my bond. It just happened. I taught in London, I taught in America, and I came back to Australia three years later and I bounded up to the education department. Um, and we had a little flat in Kirribilli and then a house in McMahon's Point. Um, and I think, and, and I went to the clerk and I said, I'm really ready to come back and be a teacher. I'm so looking forward to it. And he said, yes, he said, oh, he said, I, tell me about yourself. And he, no, he, wouldn't, he didn't say it quite like that because that's contemporary language. He said, oh, yeah, tell me what, about your records, I think he said. So I produced references from overseas and my references from Cremorne. And he said, mm, his brow's getting furrowed, you know, he's about 30. I was 26 and he said... Oh, he said, I don't know. He said, you won't be able to... I said, I'll start a six years experience. And no, he said, you won't be able to do that. He said, you work for three years here and every year you leave, you have a year off. So that takes you back to zero. And we don't count overseas experience. And I said, the London Education Department counted my experience. He said, well, of course, it's New South Wales. I go, oh, really? And, he, and I just had a pregnancy test and I was not particularly fertile and it was very exciting to, for my first pregnancy. And I don't know what possessed me. We'd never, I'd never advise anyone to do it. And I said, oh, I said, and I'm having a baby. And his face went, oh, my God. There's no, she's out of it. And I said, he said, well, that's... The, he said, you're not going to work when you're married in that sort of tone. And I said, yes. He said, oh, no, no. He said, we don't advise that. I don't know who we was, but it had to be the department. He said, no, he said, that's not a good idea. But he said, we could probably get you some work with special ed classes. You know, you could mind them. Like, I think they should be taught, not minded. But anyway, I thought I won't have that argument right now. And he said, and I said, well, I'm very happy to be a fill-in for people. Um, you know, my baby's due in the end of May and here we are in December. And he said, oh, I just don't know. And he said, well, maybe we'll, go for, maybe we'll be able to find you some casual work. So... Home I went feeling really sad and thinking it's not much going to happen here anyway. It was a Thursday and Monday I got a note to say that I'd appoint, been appointed to Mossman High for five months. And I thought, perfect, something, I don't know what happened. So off I went to Mossman High where I taught until the baby was born. After that baby was born, after about eight months I'm getting, uh, thinking I might go back to work despite mothers and mothers-in-law and aunties and everyone else telling me it's the beginning of the end. Your children won't like you. They'll be delinquents. You know, there's a new word to describe you, what your children will be, latchkey. <laughs> Remember latchkey? The children who went to school, whose teachers made them wear the key, the latch to their house, around their neck, so that other people would know they had nowhere to go. 
uh, you know, they had to go home by themselves. No nice mothers like the Brady Bunch mother who was paid a fortune to act like one. I would tell my children every week when they looked at it. And so I tried to, I tried to get back into the department. After five weeks, um, I found that the only work I was offered was in the western suburbs. You got the call at quarter to nine when a teacher hadn't turned up, getting from here to Riverstone. You got there about 11 and you had to leave at two. Didn't, it just didn't, wasn't worth it. So I wrote to every school from the Harbour Bridge pretty well to Crow's Nest. Just think of the circle. There were about 30 schools. 28 didn't respond. So any th chance that idea that I thought that I'd be a gift to the education system of any sort was quickly dispelled. And then the principal of Shaw wrote to me and he said, it's quite an interesting application, Mrs McCarthy, he said, but we don't have facilities for women at this school. Oh. And I, that meant laboratories, I think. And I thought, well, I know there are women clerical staff there because one lived next door to me. So I sort of, you know, shouted at her and she said, they just don't like women up there. He says, mostly we go down the road. I go, okay. And then the principal of Winona wrote back and she said, I think you were, I think I might have played hockey against you when I was at Neg, a teacher at Neggs, when I was at New England University. She said, why don't you just come up and have a talk? Well, I was in heaven. An hour later, I had a full-time contract. I taught for three days a week. My daughter Sophie was in one of those shockingly unsafe, you know, wicker things that used to be in the back of the car, forget all the stuff that's there now, for a baby. And she would stay in the staff room and someone would mind her while she slept. And I, and, and I taught for the happiest year. And I repeated that at Monty and various other schools. So I sort of know the underbelly of this area pretty well. But what it meant is that... And then I taught in North Sydney TAFE and that was a really happy place. And when, at the end of that, I decided I was going to apply, 1975, I thought, right, I've now got three children under five, there'll be no more, and what I need to do now is get serious about my career. Because I've been doing bits and pieces. You know, we'd only went to action campaigns, lots of fun things. I, I knew my community really well. So I decided that would be a fun thing to do, so I went to the... And there was a position in the geography department, I was teaching geography there, and I said to the geography master, what do you think? He said, oh, you should definitely apply for it. After about a month, I thought, yeah, what about that job? And he said, oh, he said, I meant to tell you. He said, look, we just had this bloke apply and he's, you know, it's only 24, he's got a new baby, his wife's got a new baby and he's a geologist. And I said, but we're talking about geography. The geology part's about one, you know, maybe 10% of the course at most. He said, but he's got a family. I said, I've got a family. <laughs> He said, so I said, you mean I'm not even getting an interview? He said, no. He said, next time around, he said, it might be a better idea if you came to the pub occasionally on Friday night. And I said, why would I go to the pub on Friday night when I see you all the week, when I have my own family to go home to? And I thought, that's it. And I think, I mean, I already was an out there feminist and some of them didn't like that. But I just knew at that moment there was no teaching career for me. Anyway... Sometime later, I found a job in family planning and the next decade of my life, I worked in family planning. And I really became a community educator. So I went from a classroom out into the community as a community educator. 
just going to... Will someone make a big sound when I've got to shut up? Or throw their hand in the air? Are we, are we OK, Margaret? Yep. Um, and, and I started working in family planning. And that was a time when the Whitlam government had given money to family planning. And for the first time there was paid educational, there was opportunity for paid educational work in the community and the schools. And I was the very lucky person who got that job. But those jobs, and I was part of the takeover of family planning too. Um, we took it over and that's a long story but you can read that in the book. But the interesting thing is skipping out into community work. Suddenly the things that I'd done in the six, eight years that I didn't go to work became of value. And I do encourage you and to say to the younger people in your family, being successful is not incremental and linear. There are lots of stops along the way, many of them. I moved sideways three times I, against the advice of every man I knew who said you should never earn less money in a new job than you did in your last one. I said, oh, I might be able to make something of it. So in a sense, I, I became a sort of a start-up queen, really. Um, and, I, and I stayed in family planning for a decade. And then I became an advisor to Malcolm Fraser. And years later, I asked the Minister for Home Affairs, Bob Ellicott, I said, how did we all get appointed to that gig? You never knew. You just got a phone call saying, is your name Wendy McCarthy? Yes. Um, look, the government's looking for someone to be on this um, place. Would you be interested? And I said... Yes, I'd be very interested to be on a women's, National Women's Advisory Council. And so I was. The same when I went to the Higher Education Board. Would you like to go on the Higher Education Board? I said, what's that? The Minister for Education said, basically, you're a pain in the bum to us. He said, uh, you're in that women in education group. You're always criticising the government. You've got a chance. Come inside the tent or shut up. <laughs> and I thought about it and I said, oh, I have to think about it. He said, you haven't got any time. He said, have you, have you got a degree? That's how much research they've done. And I said, yes. And he said, that's all you need to know about higher education. Come on. <laughs> so I joined a board of 19 men and me. And they were pretty well all engineers in um, AWA. I, I think that was because of the TAFE sector. I never really found out. But I, I realised suddenly you're there and the scales drop from your eyes. They weren't any cleverer, smarter. They didn't even know much about education. I knew more. But we'd never really been had the confidence as women to just say yes first and think about it later. Margaret, you'd like some questions? Uh, let's please thank Wendy for her <laughs> So we do have time for a couple of questions. Um, anyone have their hand up ready to ask? Everyone's intimidated. <laughs> so... Oh the, the dumbest question is usually the smartest. Oh, okay. Right. I was going to make one up, but I won't. <laughs> I just want to say thank you, Wendy. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I know I can speak under wet cement, so but I do know that after the cement comes into your mouth. But thank you for being a very good audience. I just want to say I came from an interview from with John Laws. Seriously, I didn't know he was still alive. <laughs> but Christine, my advisor, said, I think we should go. And I said, yes, I want to go to every audience. I want people to know 
that being female is being recreated in this country at the moment. We have a new range of activists and they, they need all the grandmother's arms around them while they do the next thing. The things are happening now. We have to encourage them. And, and I just thought, when we put our arms out for change, and you remember that we were mostly told to be seen and not heard, well, they're going to be heard. Their voices are roaring. And so let's all make sure that we help them on their way and pick them up when they fall over like some of the fabulous older women did for me. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening. Thank you.